Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Support for this episode comes from eBay. Whether it's a holy grail pair of sneakers, head-turning handbags, or one genuine wardrobe staple. If you're always on the hunt for that one wardrobe staple you just gotta have, eBay gets it. Nothing's more important than the real deal. When you shop on eBay, all you have to do is look out for that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be verified authentic through a detailed inspection. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. India is home to 200 million Muslims. It's the third largest Muslim population in the entire world. And yet, in the past several years, under the leadership of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, India has moved decisively towards turning these people into second-class citizens. And now, due to a recent conjunction of bills, may start treating them like they are not citizens at all. And the construction of detention camps to house some of these Muslims rendered stateless. This is Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Alex Ward. Jen Williams, our general other host, is out. But Sagal Samuel, who is a reporter for Vox's Future Perfect, is in the studio. She's been covering the horrible situation in India. Sagal, thank you for being here. Good to be here. To talk about this lovely, this this very exciting and yes, thrilling Yes, this, this lovely, horrible situation. We never bring in guests for good things. That, <laughs> that can't be true. <laughs> anyway, look, we, we want to get into this policy. We want to talk about what is happening to India under Narendra Modi and, and more broadly, the rise of anti-Muslim sentiment across the world as a, as a defining element of anti-democratic politics. Uh, but before we get into the big picture themes, uh, Sigal, you've been writing a lot about this stuff for the site. I want to talk to you about just like exactly what the policies are. First, like when did India start talking about these policies changing the status of Muslims under law? And what are the actual policies? Cool. So basically the bill that India just passed in both the lower and upper house of parliament is called the Citizenship Amendment Bill, or the CAB. And that basically makes religion into a criterion for deciding uh, which religious minorities should be fast-tracked uh, for citizenship in India and who should be treated as an illegal immigrant. The immigrants that it uh, allows India to treat not as illegal immigrants but as people who should be fast-tracked are people who came from Afghanistan, Bangladesh, and Pakistan, so those three specific countries. And it says Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Jains, Parsis, Christians, all good. One group is missing from that list. So this has been uh, under debate since 2016, right? So what, what led to its passage now? Yeah, so when it this, this idea has been kicking around for a while, but it, it sort of lost support after uh, an important political ally pulled out and mass protests erupted over it. Um, 
Now it is back, um, and it's closely linked to another policy uh, that came into force this summer. I I was about to say, right, on its own, the citizenship bill seems like an immigration policy thing, which has real disturbing implications, but doesn't seem to implicate the status of Muslims inside India. But there's a second set of policies that make the situation much, much more disturbing, even than a discriminatory immigration bill. Exactly. So it is sort of an interlocking policy with this other thing called the NRC, the National Register of Citizens, which so far has only been implemented in Assam, which is a northeastern state in India, bordering on Bangladesh. And basically what happened there is this summer, uh, and this this policy has also been kind of kicking around for a while, but it was finally implemented. Uh, There was an enumeration of, of folks there, and basically everyone ended up on a list if they were deemed to be legitimate citizens who had, you know, people who had immigrated there legally. And if your name turned out to not be on this list, you were told you have a set amount of time to produce a birth certificate or a land deed or whatever to prove that you are, in fact, a legitimate citizen. And if you can't, you're going to be deemed illegal and you're going to potentially be put in one of these 10 new detention camps that India is building to house these folks. And the next step after that, according to the ruling party of India, the BJP, would be deportation. So these camps are not, again, for anyone who gets deemed illegal under this, right? Like this is really a policy specifically targeting Muslims. So we should say that in the NRC, first of all, in August, uh, when that list of names came out, there were about uh, nearly 2 million people who found their names were left off. And a lot of them were Muslims. Some of them were Hindus. And that creates a real problem for the BJP because they don't want to be putting in camps and, and expelling fellow Hindus. The BJP is Narendra Modi's party. That's right. So that creates kind of an awkward situation for the BJP. And you can see how they might want to sort of put forward some other additional piece of legislation that would allow them to say, OK, but if you're Hindu and your name kind of get off, got off, left off this list, there's a there's a way for you to kind of still reestablish yourself. Uh, there's maybe a bit of a loophole for you that we're not going to extend to the Muslims who are left off the list. If you're a casual listener or casually following along and you're kind of going, OK, well, maybe there's this is some sort of misunderstanding. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe they'll, they'll sort of figure this out. And this does seem – and if that's your take of this, allow me to try to dispel that. So – the BJP is a Hindu nationalist party. That's the one that Modi leads. And uh, I'm not a, an expert in this, but it's worth pointing out that, that a lot of members of this party believe in Hindutva, which is basically that India is a – should be Hindu. It's a Hindu country. People need to follow by those tenets basically. Uh, I'm, I'm being speaking very generally. There is a strain of thought that Muslims are second, third, fourth class citizens and in fact that they are – uh, extremists and that they are – could be terrorists and that there's a jihadi ideology and that they're trying to constantly bomb and hurt and 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 destroy this Hindu culture. And so Modi grew up in this, uh, as did a lot of people in, in the upper echelons of that party. And there's – I don't think it's a surprise or a coincidence that a lot of these policies going after Muslims have really started since Modi took power earlier this decade. And so this is sort of a problem that you're seeing now. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, 
But when you hear the comments coming from BJP officials, Modi is slightly more careful, although in some rallies he has said some horrible things about Muslims, but a lot of his upper officials will say, be pretty clear about, like, Muslims bad, <laughs> they are dangerous, be very careful. And this, there has led to, like, tons of uh, targeted violence against Muslims throughout the country. This is actually a really deep tension uh, in Indian society, right? Because the BJP is the political manifestation of an organization called the RSS or the Sangh. And it, it's a religio-militant organization with political wings, more explicitly religious wings, charitable wings, and has existed for a very long time. Uh, we're talking to the point where someone affiliated with the RSS actually assassinated Gandhi because there was a sense that he was too open to the idea of a secular democracy that didn't privilege Hindu identity over Muslim ones. So this is, this is decades, decades ago, back to the founding of India, where there has been this sense, a group that is organized and pressured towards creating a state that privileges Hindu status over specifically Muslims. Uh, it's more tolerant of Sikhs and other minorities, but generally wants to assert the supremacy of Hinduism. And now, especially since Modi's ascendance, he's emerged as the most talented BJP politician maybe ever in India's history. I think it's probably fair to say. And that has led him to pursuing this agenda fairly ruthlessly. And it's also, I think, worth noting that Modi was eight years old when he was recruited by the RSS. So he's a lifelong card-carrying member, right? So he's he's been sort of shaped in this ideology forever uh, and now he's really propounding it in a kind of more hardline way than we've seen in a long time. Hence the bills, which I, I want to zero in on what they would actually do and why they're so important to this project, right? Because in conjunction, they create a really, really kind of terrifying system, right? So one, you have this citizenship bill that strips certain people of their citizenship unless they can prove it otherwise. And then two— you have the fast track bill, which means that any Hindus who are caught up in this, Sigal was, was hinting at this earlier, any Hindus who are caught up in the purge get a fast track back in. But Muslims don't. And so Muslims get disproportionately under the system, taken out of citizenship, and discriminated against when they try to get their citizenship back. It is, in effect, a way of justifying purging Muslim citizenship. And then, and this is the really scary part, sending Muslims to camps or deporting them. Yeah, and given the scale of this and how many Muslims we're talking about, uh, a lot of international rights groups are concerned that this could trigger a huge uh, refugee crisis, a ton of migration. This could potentially, in a worst-case scenario, turn into a big humanitarian disaster. That is bad because there's already a serious humanitarian issue in that area, right, in terms of yeah. displaced populations. Yeah, and with climate change, the refugee situation is only going to get worse, we can only expect. It, it does seem there's a chance that the courts might strike this down, but as far as I'm, I know, Modi has—the courts have been pretty friendly toward Modi policies, and so the chance of that is pretty slim, right? Yeah, I mean, some people, like uh, members of the Congress Party, which is opposition party to Modi's BJP— Say we we think slash hope that this uh, this bill is going to be struck down by the courts on the grounds that it's unconstitutional. India's constitution uh, says everyone's equal before the law. Religion is not a criterion for citizenship eligibility. So 
in theory, the courts could strike it down. But part of the issue is that Modi's party, as we've talked about, I mean, the, this sort of movement that he has been a part of, he's born in the darkness, uh, that he's been in for a long time, like it is infiltrated, in that, and I use that word somewhat deliberately, like a lot of aspects of the country, the media, the the courts, the, the, the law enforcement, et cetera, et cetera. And so to believe that you know, the, this court will do it without, will make this decision kind of like within, within a vacuum without without outside pressure is going to be hard to believe. There is also, a, I mean, lifeline is too strong a word for this, but there is a backlash to this, of course, not only just politically, but there are people protesting in the street calling this unconstitutional, uh, going up against law enforcement that are shooting back at these protesters throughout. And so there is clearly unrest. This is not, no one is really taking this sitting down. Um, unless you are were inclined to to like the policies, it, this is this has started. I mean, it's been a long going issue this Hindu Muslim tension, but this these movements. I mean, Modi is doing a lot. It, is breaking a lot of taboos here, and he is pushing forward this agenda that is clearly led to like these tensions are erupting. Yeah, and as we speak, literally as we speak right now on Thursday morning, uh, there's huge protests underway in India, especially in the northeast in Assam's capital right now. Authorities have shut down the internet for an unspecified amount of time, and they've implemented a curfew. And, uh, you know, water cannons, tear gas, the, you know, troops have been deployed there. The backlash is pretty strong. I'm sorry, Assam is, is, has more Muslims than, than, than the, the average Indian state, in part because of its geography, right? That's right. Now, when we talk about popular unrest and protests, it's primarily concentrated among the Muslim population, right, in India. It's not, as far as I understand it? Uh, yes, but also a lot of other folks, uh, including Hindus, in Assam— it's so complicated because local Assamese folks, they're, a lot of them are really against the citizenship amendment bill because they think it'll be just making it easier for immigrants to come and, you know, flood into Assam. And they don't want that. Even Hindus, they don't, they don't care. You know, if, you, if Hindus, Muslims, like, they are just sick of this process that has lasted for many, many decades of what they view as just outsiders coming in and taking their jobs and and changing their culture and their demography. So uh, they're really nervous regardless of which kind of people come in. I, I mean, what I'm trying to get at here is the question of where support for Modi's policies are coming from and the degree to which there's popular resistance among the overwhelming majority in India, which is Hindu. Uh, and, and it's concerning because this is a, you know, all of these things considered, India is a democratic country. How democratic, we'll get into it later, but Modi just won re-election fairly recently by an overwhelming margin, um, controlling both houses of India's parliament and, and being one of the more empowered prime ministers in modern Indian history to pursue his agenda. You would think in a world where a democratic government is launching this kind of crackdown on minority rights, you would want there to be a kind of pan-ethnic, pan-religious united front against this kind of thing. But from what I've read, it seems that many people in the Hindu majority are, are pretty okay with what Modi is doing when it comes to Muslim rights. Yeah, Modi has a lot of support among the the Hindus, which are which form who who form eighty percent of the population. So he does have very strong support. Uh, including among young people. You know, you might think millennials might be less less inclined to go for this stuff, but no, he has really strong support there. And actually, we know from recent history that whenever Modi 
cracks down on Muslims, his numbers seem to go up. People seem to support him. Uh, you know, the, the recent uh, his recent gambit of erasing the statehood of uh, in Kashmir. People loved that. You know, he got a lot of support for that. Right. And we, we've talked about this on the show before. But for those of you who aren't up on it, uh, the policy there is that Modi essentially declared Indian sovereignty over the dispute part of the disputed territory of Jammu and Kashmir and uh, put it under martial law. And the situation there is pretty horrifying. Not just all the internet shut off stuff that we were describing, but armed people patrolling all of the streets, an untold number of people dead, a press blackout, uh, except for government-friendly outlets. It is, it is like, clinical definition of authoritarianism in that particular place. So if, if you're okay with that, maybe it's because they don't understand what's happening because of the, the restraints on the press. But it seems like it would be easy to be okay with similar tactics being exported to non-disputed territories, parts that are undisputably part of India. Yeah, and I think part of what's also feeding into this is what some people call saffronization. Uh, so this is part of the Hindutva thing uh, where basically, I mean, that that word comes from the saffron color of the robes of Hindu ascetics. And it refers to kind of a revisionist history of India whereby Muslim contributions to the country over centuries have been kind of passed over. And Hindu stuff has been emphasized. And a lot of people have said even, you know, school textbooks, the Muslim stuff has been taken out, the Hindu stuff is emphasized. So, you know, you do this for enough years and you kind of get a population who sees a different version of history and believes in that. If we extrapolate from these two bills or these two laws, and we also put it in the context of, of Modi's leadership and, and sort of the movement that he helps lead, this he and this entire situation seems like a massive stress test for India's democracy, right? Like, if the country started in part as like a deal that we were going to be a secular democracy, religions will live together, all that, and now that kind of uh, fragile piece is being ripped apart – this is with with a quite powerful leader and a popular one at that. It does seem like this is a, a massive challenge. I mean, Modi's enjoying his power. Don't get me wrong, and I'm sure he somewhere in his mind believes he's doing the right thing. But this is now a tr- very troubling moment for India and, of course, for the world because this is like one out of every seven people on Earth. Well, wait, what do you mean by somewhere in his mind? Right? It seems like it's not it's not just hidden. It's throughout his career. One of the defi- as a politician and as an activist in the RSS, um, one of his defining, perhaps the defining element of Modi's ideology has been Hindutva, has been the idea that this is a Hindu nation and should be structured as such in a very strict interpretation of what it means to be an ethno-national democracy where you get privileged rights and a particular minority is sidelined. Like, it's it's not that he thinks somewhere he's doing the right thing. It's that what you and I and Seagal believe to be the wrong thing, a morally unjustifiable set of actions, are to him demanded by principle. That is just what he believes, as far as I can tell, anyway. Yeah, he seems wholeheartedly to believe that. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to pick up this theme when we come back, talking about uh, not just Modi personally, but the extent to which India can survive as a democratic society Uh, under these conditions and how India plays into the broader problem, both of right-wing demagoguery and of violence targeting Muslims internationally. Support for this episode comes from eBay. Whether it's a holy grail pair of sneakers, head-turning handbags, or one genuine wardrobe staple— 
If you're always on the hunt for that one wardrobe staple you just gotta have, eBay gets it. Nothing's more important than the real deal. When you shop on eBay, all you have to do is look out for that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be verified authentic through a detailed inspection. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We are talking about the Indian government's disturbing policy uh, towards Muslim minorities in general and specifically in the state of Assam, where a series of laws have created a situation where many Muslims who were Indians uh, may be rendered stateless. Now, we've talked a lot about this being uh, an element of Modi's ideology, right? This idea that India is a Hindu state. Uh, my question is, to what extent can this coexist not just with a liberal democracy, that is a democracy that treats minorities and individual rights as things worth respecting, but any kind of democracy at all, a state that that has the, the minimum amount of fair processes that allow it to be described uh, as democratic. I want to argue that what we actually see is a, a moving toward a situation that is more and more incompatible with democracy. Something that I, I should have mentioned earlier that I think is important to note, the NRC, that National Register of Citizens, where they enumerate, you know, who's a citizen and if you're left off the list, you're in big trouble. We mentioned before the break that so far has been done only in the northeastern state of Assam. Important point to note is that the BJP, the ruling party, wants to extend that nationwide, right? So if we see this being applied across India, this stands to impact not just the 2 million that we talked about in Assam, but 200 million, right? And so then you start to think about, okay, there's 200 million uh, Muslims in India, potentially could get, uh, some of them can get left off this list and then targeted as a result. That starts to feel really undemocratic. So I'm going to play the the highest form of devil's advocate here. Oh, no. (laughs) So, because I mean, I'm sure this is an argument you'll hear. Like, Modi won the election handedly, right, has both houses of parliament. He's been very clear about what he's wanted to pursue. The fact that people are voting him in, does that not, like, is not following on the policies that he's promised to pursue democratic? Not only that, but to add to your devil's advocate, the Supreme Court uh, actually ruled, we have to implement this National Register of Citizens a few years back. This this has been talked about for years, and the court finally came down and said, guys, you got to finally just do it. So you could argue, like, hey, you know, we're just following orders. Narendra Modi, top Democrat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, look, there are lots of lots of issues with the account of democracy being presented here. I want to start uh, with one with one raised by uh, an article in the New Yorker that you should all read by Dexter Filkins on Modi's history and his policy towards Muslims and the state of India today. It's it's fantastic. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, but uh, one thing that Filkins really focuses on is the a state of journalism 
in India under Modi. And he talks about the ways in which the RSS and the BJP have put pressure on Indian news organizations not to cover the news in a way that uh, is unfavorable to Modi or could make him look bad. Anchors who interviewed Modi and, you know, he came away looking unpleasant, interviewed him specifically pressing him when he was a governor on his basically tacit permission of anti-Muslim riots and he didn't really have a good answer. That person got sacked and fired under pressure from the Modi government. Uh, Independent news organizations, editors have been challenged, various different outlets have been stifled in their ability to cover things. A sort of Fox News equivalent that's even more shouty has become a major news thing, and it's it's overwhelmingly pro-Modi. Basically, what what you've seen is a corruption of the, the media ecosystem to the point where it's not clear to me, and I need to look at a more systematic analysis of, of what's happening there, but it's not clear to me that India has a, a transmission belt where accurate information is getting to its citizens who can then make a fair and considered choice as to who they want to lead their government. And the, and to be fair, even the government uh, – not to be fair. <laughs> even the government is taking advantage of this. I mean we should also say that a lot of uh, people in India, millions are illiterate. They do have uh, – you know, so it's it's – easier, not easy, but easier to present people with information and they kind of just accept it as, as truth because – One of the most chilling points in the article is the way in which social media has not not illiteracy so much as uh, the lack of access to information and the ease of transmitting information on WhatsApp, which is very normative in India. Uh, so one journalist uh, – and this is apparently fairly common with female journalists who was critical of the government – had uh, fake porn of her distributed, uh, was harassed, inundated with rape threats. It's so easy to make up stuff about people and distribute it. Yeah, and in these social media groups, you know, WhatsApp groups and so on, it's it's all distributed without any context, right? So it's just like these isolated little bits of accusations and rumor and people will, will take that as fact. And so it does seem like the party and the RSS, they have this like I, I think it was called an IT group or something like that in this Silkins article. They, they it's just it's it, they it's a propaganda. They just throw out and disinformation. They just throw out all this stuff in 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 hopes of uh, improving their image or pushing forward this agenda. And actually, th- this happened to kind of me in person. Uh, so uh, in September, I and a bunch of other reporters interviewed the external foreign, uh, the external affairs minister of India. And he was here in Washington and we went to this luncheon and he was challenged very intently on the what was going on in Assam. So of course, it's September. So it's before this stuff. But, but Assam was happening and what he said was like, look, he literally said it's fake news. Like the stuff, not that there was a policy. I mean, he was very clear about that. Uh, he was clear that it was happening. But he was like, look, this has been going on since the 80s. This is something that we are we have a right to do. This notion that there are going to be camps at all is fake news. Uh, this is just very, you know, we're it's just our right to be able to do these things. We need to know who's in our country. And and then the reporter, I should call her out in Hall Tusi from Politico, uh, she was like, so if I'm a citizen of Assam, I'm just going to hope that things work out for me and that, like, I'm not going to be put into a camp. And if I'm uh, mistakenly, uh, you know, off this list, that will be rectified. And the minister's like, yeah, it'll be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, and I would play this clip for you, but it, it's uh, it's a it's kind of bad. But like, uh, but all this to say is um, like he was willing to do this, and he's a member of the BJP, of course, and he is from Gujarat, which is the the state that Modi was the governor of, and so like you know he was to our faces being very clear and lying, <laughs> and, and like I, if they're willing, I mean. 
it, I just I now feel having seen what's going on, having read the article, uh, the Spilkins article, and just and reading Seagal's, which we'll also put in the show notes. I I feel lied to, and 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 uh, I'm just one very 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 small example of of what seems to be happening. And the folks, especially in Assam, are really anxious about this, right? As you can imagine, like uh, uh, I yeah. would be, yeah. uh, to the point that uh, some, according to the New York Times, have committed suicide, including one 14 year old girl. Um, hanged herself uh, out of, you know, as a result of the anxiety of, you know, her family being split apart and who knows where people are going to be shipped off to. So this is having, like, very real repercussions. It's it's really, you can't just say, like he apparently said, uh, oh, yeah, you know, just chill if you're, you know, you'll be on the list if you're so supposed to be on the list. Well, what this, these descriptions of India and the, the accounts that we're getting of where the society is going remind me of, of nothing more than Hungary, where I was last year, uh, which is a country that has, has clearly fallen from the ranks of democracy, clearly but subtly. It's an odd tension. It is obvious if you follow the details of Hungarian society, but it's not clear if you just look at it, you're like, well, they have elections and they won. The sort of naive point that Alex was uh, trying to build up earlier, right, is, it, you know, it has the veneer of democracy, but behind the scenes, to go back to the media example, the Hungarian government either owns or has allies of it owning a massive, massive, massive percentage of news outlets. There's barely any fair and, and widely read outlet for dissent, and that plays a crucial part in the government's maintenance of control and of the appearance of democracy without there being real democracy. So it is fair, I think, to draw parallels between the kind of authoritarian populism that you're seeing that is that has decimated Hungarian democracy and what Modi is doing to Indian democracy on, on a much larger scale, right? India— A much larger yeah, scale. <laughs> Hungary is small. It's like 10 million people. Yeah. And India is over a billion, right? We're talking one of the world's largest and most important countries. And, and another similarity between Modi and Orban, the leader of Hungary, they're both very smart. These are not um, Trump figures. They're sort of bumbling around and yelling and—, and embarrassing themselves in the sort of obvious way that our president does, they're disciplined, they're clever, they have legal and and sophisticated plans for pursuing their anti-democratic, anti-minority policies and have done so in a way that have appealed to large swaths of the country in the way that it's designed. It's not been so intentionally divisive in the way that the sort of authoritarian populism plays out in the United States where you pit almost half of the voting population against each other. It, it looks like when you have political participation, the broad swath of people who actually participate support these governments. So, so Zach, since you've studied this so much, I, I, I'm just interested, like, one, it seems like this playbook is ex as exported, as you so neatly pointed out. Like, what can people do to kind of push back against it? Or is there sort of a playbook against? And I'm wondering, I'm sure it's different country to country to country, but I'm just wondering, like, are there... Yeah, I don't know. Are there any solutions to this in India, Hungary, elsewhere? Well, like, that's that's the thing, right? We're in the middle of a wave of anti-democratic retrenchment across the world, most heavily concentrated in the West, but not exclusively, obviously, in India, and you can see in, in places like Venezuela and Bolivia as well. Um, and nobody has seen anything like this before in advanced democracies, right? There are are countries that have gone back and forth between democracy where there's been backsliding, but they tend to be poorer and more marginalized. And now we're seeing a style of authoritarian populism that's relatively new, relatively sophisticated, and without uh, an obvious kind of precedent 
I mean, there are some parallels with historical examples, but it's it's its own thing. And so I don't I, I don't have the answers because nobody has pioneered the answers yet. I was hoping right? you could solve the world's problems right here. Yeah, uh, yeah. But like, so what what also kind of bothers me is well, not kind of it does, is that like Modi is getting lots of love uh, around the world. I mean, we've seen him with Netanyahu. I think we have an article somewhere in Vox. I mean, they were hugging, and it was kind of this interesting meeting. We had Modi just recently here in the U.S. He got he did this massive event where Trump opened for him. <laughs> Howdy, Modi. Howdy, Modi. It was in Texas, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how you got Donald Trump to be like your opening act is beyond me, um, not only because he's president of the United States, but also because he's Trump. Uh, but Modi spoke to thousands of Indian Americans, just this uproarious event. Where, to speaking to some of our things, uh, Hassan Minaj, who, who hosts uh, Patriot Act on Netflix, because he's been critical of Modi, was not allowed into the event. And in that event, on like the screen, they were showing, you know, the greatness of Indian Americans, and they put his face on the screen. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> like, it was like him, Aziz Ansari, and someone else. And and, he, there, and then he, there he was, like, out in the parking lot. He couldn't attend this own event. And so— uh, like he, Modi is, it seems to have this strong base where people agree with him. Uh, they are coming out to support him in America. They are supporting him elsewhere. I don't see his power dropping any time. And even dissidents like Hassan Minhaj, who's got a pretty powerful platform, right? He's giving his ideas on the news to uh, people all over the world, and he's being shut out by uh, by Modi's people. I mean, there there are reasons for that that aren't just like Indian Americans hate democracy. Right? No, of it's, course, that's of course, not, of course, that's not the case, right? No, it's, no, of course. Uh, it's also that Modi has had a number of very successful economic policies. Not all, uh, you know, the the cashless stuff seems yeah. to not have gone very well. An experiment of getting rid of cash entirely, you know, there, there's there are real successes, um, infrastructure successes, growth successes, though some of those are overstated by government statistics. Yeah, there are allegations that they've like doubled the GDP growth numbers or something like that. Like multiplied, just, by, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever it is, like that multiplied that, by a factor of two. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, that that it has been uh, embellished. But anyway. <laughs> right. There's good reason to believe that Modi is pursuing a kind of modernizing project when it comes to the economy and certain things like that, but while also pulling it to a more atavistic, dangerous past when it comes to tolerance, minority rights, and things like that. Yeah, and there's a lot of people, including in the U.S., like really don't know how to grapple with this tension. Uh, there was a, a bit of an uproar recently, just in, in late September, I think, where uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right, there was this this uh, award that went to Modi for his sort of the, the toilets uh, thing that he's pioneering in India, right? So, like, just, just getting more toilets to everyone so there's, you know, you don't have to, like, go out in the open. Because there's, there's an issue with public defecation and disease. And yeah, that, right? hygiene. Hygiene, yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, like, a genuinely good thing, right? Improving hygiene, improving public health. Sure, that's great. Uh, but then the idea that we should be giving Modi an award for this and kind of promoting him on this public stage uh, was really problematic. And I think one of the staffers of the foundation actually left as a result. Mm. And, and the thing that makes this really troubling is it is um, it, it's part of a broader wave of countries uh, for their own domestic reasons like this isn't a coordinated international thing but a wave of different countries horribly mistreating Muslim minorities and and India is bad as we've been talking about over the course of this episode the situation in China with the Uyghurs is, is much much worse there the indigenous um, Muslim minority in Xinjiang province, uh, is is being really put in concentration camps. They're being their culture is being wiped out. 
and the the camps and the repression is is quite brutal. And uh, the Rohingya in in Burma, Myanmar, were targets of a genocide campaign. Right, that's not understating it. It's created a massive refugee crisis in this area that has strained the resources that could be made worse by the Indian policy. These things are are, are not disconnected. Right, they're all geographically in the like obviously. Asia is a very big continent, but geographically, these things are not that far away. And it's it's creating this interlocking situation where Muslims in East Asia and South Asia, uh, outside of uh, Muslim-majority states, are in a very, very precarious situation. And it's interesting that you see a lot of similar trends in those different contexts as you're seeing now in India, right? So with China, where one million Uyghur Muslims are in camps, you know, you see the same— but more pronounced crackdown on freedom of the press. And in Myanmar slash Burma with the Rohingya, uh, the the same the sort of use of social media to kind of like catalyze violence that we were talking about in regards to India was, was really, really present there. Particularly Facebook played actually a, a substantial role in catalyzing that violence. I want to shout out to former Vox foreign correspondents Max Fisher and Amanda Taub, who've done great reporting on the role of Facebook and the stuff at the New York Times. Their work you should check out later. Max and Amanda's work is, is part of a, a broader set of... Uh, of reporting, illustrating the way in which this is not just a government-led project. In China, it obviously is is overwhelmingly that. But in Myanmar and India, there's grassroots support for these kind of campaigns, and ordinary people participate in them and carry them out. They act as instruments of the state in committing low-level violence. In India, some of these attacks on Muslims are referred to as, as lynchings, right, in a direct import I don't know if that's the term that ordinary Indians use, but it's been used to describe it in a direct import from the United States, obviously. Yeah, the, the so-called beef lynchings, right? So cows in India are viewed as sacred uh, among Hindus, and uh, there have been a lot of really, really violent, ugly attacks on Muslims who are accused of uh, selling and eating beef. Yeah, so I just don't want that point to be lost. These are not harmless policies being pursued. Uh, Muslims in India and elsewhere are— well, let's focus on India, are, are just getting, abs- you know, they're getting beaten. They are being killed, raped, all all kinds of horrors. And Modi, from really the beginning of his political career, has looked the other way and, and, and now seems, and now, not just seems, is leading a campaign to to, to kind of root them out in, in, in multiple different ways. The other thing that makes this particularly troubling right now is the world is in an awful position to address these problems. And, and not just... Uh, because of Trump being the U.S. president and not really caring about the way that Muslims are treated, uh, but because there's there's real countervailing pressures. For instance, in Myanmar, uh, a human rights hero, Aung San Suu Kyi, has become a, a defender, an outright defender just this week, talking about how justified the government's treatment of Muslims and the Rohingya are, uh, dividing uh, using her credibility as a human rights defender and putting that on the line. And Myanmar is the easy case, right? Because it's relatively isolated with the world to begin with, a longstanding military dictatorship that has only recently made moves to reform, uh, recently being like the Obama administration. China and India uh, are incredibly influential internationally, grossing economies, military forces, nuclear powers. It is much, much harder just as a matter of um, the influence of foreign countries and of the costs to those countries to stand up and put real human rights pressure on them to curtail their abuses of the Muslim minority. And so it's a much harder problem to solve 
than a country that you could just, uh, you know, isolate economically or even intervene against militarily. What do you do when two of the linchpins of the international system have become two of the world's scariest human rights abusers? I don't know, man. <laughs> we're all we're all shrugging here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. This, these kinds of issues are vital ones for the 21st century, and it's not going to be the last time that we talk about them. Um, and so I want to thank Segal for coming on yes. and talking through this, this very disturbing issue with us. Read her work at Vox.com, and all of you should check out the Future Perfect Vertical in general. They do really awesome work. Uh, I want to thank our engineer, Malachi Brodus, our producer, Jackson Bierfeldt, and uh, we will see you all next week for the concluding worldly episode of the year. We're going to wrap up some stuff. Oh, man. Take care. Support for this episode has come from eBay. You know real when you feel it. And with eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you don't have to wonder. You know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be checked by experts and verified authentic. Maybe it's a designer handbag, sneakers that pop, jewelry that shines as bright as you do. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.